Welcome back. For today's episode, I'm going to try something a little different. For a start, I'm going to try and uh, live by my values, which isn't that different, but the way I'm going to do it is to share a lot about myself. So this is going to be a very about Dan episode. Literally, it's going to be autobiographical. So if you're not that interested in me, then don't listen to this one because it'll piss you off. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. What I thought I'd do is share something. Now, I've been keeping track of a potential book in the future that I'm writing called Memories. And what I'm doing is, is, is random memories occur to me uh, from my childhood and so on. I'm just writing them down, like little paragraphs Maybe I'll pass on to my daughter one day or I'll turn into an autobiography or something. And what I thought is I've got enough of them now that I could share some of them with you to paint a picture of not only how I became a nice guy, but how I got into recovering from it. The kind of whole arc of the story, everywhere I've been, everything I've tried to do, the things that happened to me, not everything actually, but the some of the key significant ones that when I look back, I knew that they were game changers, negatively or positively. They were the ones that I remember as having a big significant impact. So I'm going to share some of those with you today, and we'll see how it plays out. Now, of course, I can't cover everything. That's why I'll write a book one day. But here's some of the key ones that I also know relate to clients that I've managed. So they have similar experiences that they also reckon are pretty either detrimental or helpful to their own outcome as a nice guy and so on. So one of the first things I remember quite clearly is that we moved schools three times before I turned eight years old. So in the first three years of my schooling life, I had three different schools. And I didn't know it at the time because I didn't know any different. But I now know that that was devastating. And if parents can avoid it, they should. Because it is so difficult for a kid, especially a kid like myself that wasn't socialized much. I didn't have like friends. I didn't have many cousins. I was a single, uh, you know, I was the oldest brother and my youngest brother was just a kid by the time I went to school. He's just like three years old, two years old. You know, going to school was my first real social experience. So I didn't have the skills of how to form friendships or anything like that. And I always remember feeling behind, like everyone else had something sorted out and I didn't know what was going on. Added to that, like, Six to eight months of my first school, and they moved me. So I'm coming in at the end of the year at another new school, completely miles away from anyone I've ever known. And the only kids available to be friends with me are the other ones who have been ostracized. There's about two of them, plus a neighbor that I lived near, where we formed a kind of loose... It wasn't really friendship as much as it was a kind of, I guess, an alliance of losers, you know. And I just remember... Examples like walking around school when one of them was sick or off playing sports and realizing that that's how fragile my social circle is. Like when one of them's away, I'm fucked. I'm alone. And I'd wander around the school by myself. I remember I'd always keep moving, kind of doing a loop to make it look like I was going somewhere, you know, that I wasn't just a kid with no friends. Like I'm on my way from friends to friends kind of thing. Give that impression perhaps. I can't remember it that clearly. And then when I finally got to my third school, by this stage, I was desperate again. It was like halfway through the year. I was like seven and a half years old when I went to this new school. My parents just moved at these odd times for the school year. So again, I'm going into a school where the cliques are already formed, where people have known each other for years already. But this time it was a smaller school. And so there wasn't enough room for multi-cliques like the previous one. There was just one group of people, the whole class, basically were friends with each other because that's how small the school was. And so it was easier for me to get in there. And because I could, I was okay at sports and wasn't completely bizarre or weird, and I'd started to discover how to be funny, uh, I was able to ingratiate myself into the social circle. Uh, but that was a huge effect on me. It made me very anxious about losing people, which actually turned into an avoidant attachment style. I realized I can't get close to people because they're taken away from me all the time. Right? So I have to always sort of keep my distance. I can't get too attached. Now, I wasn't fully formed at that stage, and I did make some big attachments. But again, when uh, primary school ended, my very best friend was sent to a different high school. 
and all my other friends were sent to the one I went to. But my favorite friend was sent to this other high school, and I actually had huge arguments with my parents trying to get them to send me to this school. I'm glad they didn't. It was an all-boys school, really rough. I would not have enjoyed it. But that was another nail in the coffin. You know, another best friend taken away from me. All right, lesson learned, I'm out. Also, a key thing to note, another memory was that in the earlier years, in the first two schools, I had a reputation, as far as a reputation for a kid can go, as being the crybaby. So crying was like my most uh, common response to difficult emotion. So I was angry, sad, hurt. I I'm later found out I'm highly sensitive, so uh, I feel pain very strongly. And uh, so I'd fall over like any other kid, but I'd cry where the other kids wouldn't. And so I was known as the crybaby kid, and I always thought that that's the reason I was ostracized. I figured that the fact that I cry all the time is the reason the other kids don't like me and think I'm weird. You know, the idea that I was shy didn't occur to me. Uh, and there's plenty of other kids who cried who got along socially all right, but still not that many. I mean, this is 80s New Zealand culture. I wasn't well accepted for being an emotionally sensitive kid. And then when I got into this third school, I can almost remember the exact day it happened. There was something that made me want to cry, and I stopped myself. And I had this like epiphany. It was a specific time. I can't remember the exact day, but a specific incident where I realized, fuck, I don't have to cry. I can stop it from coming out. I have this like muscular control in my eyes to stop the tears. And there's like little techniques I can use. You know, I can not talk because my throat's all locked up and that'll make me cry more. And later on, I learned Chandler Bing style that I can crack jokes just as I feel that emotion rising and kind of relieve the tension. And that was one of the most devastating realizations I've ever had in my life because ever since then, I've struggled to cry. I mean, I've been crying more since my uh, girl was born. So the last two years, I've had more crying than probably the rest of my adulthood combined, if not my whole life, really. Um, but I became shut down. So all the emotions that really are best expressed by crying, especially sadness, stuff like that, I would shut them off so that the crying wouldn't happen. And this is where, this was the beginning of what would grow into a kind of learned psychopathy. Where anything that might make me cry, I avoid or prevent. And it was also one of the main reasons I had developed a great fear of confrontation is because quite often confrontations would make me cry when I was younger. So I was so scared that I'd cry when I tried to stand up for myself. I'd feel like the wobble in my voice and the throat lock up, you know, the heat, uh, the warning signs of crying. Uh, that I would just prevent confrontation from happening. Because what I was really scared of was not so much confrontation and anger, though those were scary because of the uh, harbingers of what was to come. But what really scared me was crying in front of other people and being ostracized for that. I'm only just now kind of realizing, well, really just now, realizing that's the real reason I was afraid of confrontation. I didn't want to be that little boy crying and alone again. Interesting. I'm really just thinking of this right now. Fuck. That's that's really interesting. Anyway, I don't want to spend too long on each story, but just milestones as we go along. Now, another key milestone that came up. Uh, God, there are so many, but a key one that came up was I performed in a play, Wizard of Oz. I was like a very secondary tertiary role. I was like one of the little elf things that they had in that, that story. And I had the singing part, and I did it really well, and I enjoyed being on stage. And the reason I consider that to be a significant moment is because I realized that I can impress people by showing off and performing. And nowadays, you know, looking back, I realized that was the birth of an idea that became a persona, which is I can avoid negative emotions and people not liking me by putting on a show. Making them laugh, entertaining them in other ways, uh, making them feel like fascinated and intrigued and interested and happy. And I just get instant validation. I remember the whole crowd clapping and laughing at my bit, which was both sort of funny and, you know, some good singing or something. And just this kind of click like, oh, I'm not afraid of doing this. I don't have stage fright. I'm not nervous like all the other kids. I want this to happen. Um, this would later on lead me probably to inspire me to join a band 
and to generally just become the kind of comedian of the group that I ended up being. So that was very significant, you know, after years of yearning to find a way to be popular and guarantee that I wouldn't be the crying kid left alone, I found this method that was really effective and fun and played to my strengths. Uh, it's almost a shame that I found that method because because it worked. And so I, it took me down a path of many decades of showing off and performing to get validation instead of finding a more authentic path. Another very key experience because a lot of my social issues were locked up in romance and sex. So women, girls, that was where the worst of my shit came out, you know. Um, I expressed interest in a girl in a very poor way. Uh, I've told this story before, but you know, a girl, uh, her friends came up to me in the playground once and said, oh, this girl likes you. And I said, well, tell her I want to fuck her then. I'm like eight years old. I don't even know what fucking is. It just popped out of my mouth because I was going through a phase where I like to say bad words because it felt thrilling. And it's one of those things, you know, as soon as you say something, you don't even know what you're saying until you see the reaction and you're like, oh, fuck, I'm in so much trouble now. You know, the way the girls screamed and ran away. I was up a tree for some reason. I was sitting on a branch. So I'm looking down on them and they ran off. I can't even like climb down to like fix this. I just knew my heart just sank. Like, oh God, I've done something very wrong. I'm not sure what, something to do with what I said. Don't even really know what it is I said. But I was just sort of nervous that a girl liked me. I didn't know how to respond. And I just panicked and said the stupid thing, trying to be funny. Anyway, it was handled so poorly. Uh, by the authorities of that school for both of us like even if that girl was really upset by what I said um, they didn't handle it well for her benefit either you know I had to write letters of apology I had to watch this tape on sexual harassment I was just shamed and embarrassed by adult after adult parents teachers headmaster it was treated like I'd fucking tried to rape somebody it was so it was treated like so horribly not once did anybody ask me with any curiosity like what did you really mean why did you say that um, they just assumed that I'm this predator and treated me as such, which only confirmed it to the girl. Whereas if there'd been some mediation, she might've found out like, I'm just an idiot who doesn't know what he's saying. And he's really, really sorry. He said that instead of thinking, Oh, there is a predator. I got to stay away from him, which she did. So the remainder of our lives, you know, she's kept her distance from me and probably being scared of me or worried about me. And that was my first real big hit about sexuality in girls. Too young to understand, too young to have it. Nobody explained it to me. But that was where belief locked in, like, don't do that. Whatever that was, do not fucking do that. And I overcorrected. I was like, I'm never going to make a girl feel like that again. And because I don't know what it is I did, I just know it was something sexual. The only plan I can come up with is never be sexual at all. So that's what I did for like 20 years and didn't go well the last like sort of childhood type memory uh, that I'll share today not the last significant one that I have but one I'll share is uh, my parents were really strict I've since discovered that this is correlated scientifically measured to be correlated with dishonesty the more strict the parents are the more likely are the kids are to become liars because it's the only way they can have a life they can't be honest or they just get in trouble all the time and I got in trouble a lot. I was punished before I even knew what the rules were. That's how I found out what a rule was, is I'd break it without knowing it existed and then be punished. So I wouldn't even get like a warning shot. You know, I'd be grounded for three weeks for doing something that I thought was okay. In fact, it was okay last week. But because my parents were all stressed out and stuff, they just changed the rules depending on their mood. They're a lot better now, but I kind of got the worst of them, unfortunately, at that time in my life. And they were just, it became clear to me as, as I got older that they were stricter than the other parents. You know, the other kids got to eat what they wanted for lunch. I always had the super healthy food. I was only allowed like one piece of chocolate a week, you know. Uh, the other kids got to hang out with each other and play together and go to the movies together all the time. I was only allowed like once a month and I had to earn it. And most of the time I was grounded for like trumped up charges, like stuff I didn't even do or stuff that... Other parents wouldn't even consider to be bad behavior, you know, so I, I, I got a clear sense of unfairness and slowly but surely, especially into my teen years, which we're about to merge into, I realized I can get around this by hiding. I can pretend to agree. I can 
hide the things I've done. Um, and I developed a habit of lying to my parents pretty consistently. I would lie before I even had figured out whether or not I should be lying. I'd lie just on instinct, like, this is probably something I'll get in trouble for, so let's just play it safe. It got to the point where, unless I'm talking about my successes with my parents, everything else was forced, faked, or hidden in some way. I mean, I was literally climbing out of my window at night and sneaking around, that kind of thing. Um, I wasn't behaving any better than my peers. And this is what strict parents need to understand, because it's not just me, it's validated by science. I just got away with it better. I hid it better. In fact, because they had no oversight of what I was doing, because I was dishonest, I was actually at greater risk. I had other friends, we'd all get into trouble together, but they'd be talking to their parents about it the next day. I'd be there watching this happen, and the parents would be talking it through with them and say, well, that was a bit dangerous, wasn't it? And they had the safety with their parents, they could always talk to them. Whereas I'm like, i got no one to talk to about this. Like, I have to keep it to myself. I can't learn any lessons from it. You know, I go to a party and get beaten up. I don't really learn anything from it because there's no one to, like, reflect. No one wires, you know. And I'm really not begrudging my parents. Like, aside from that, they did an excellent job parenting me. And I've come to realize that a lot of my nice guyness actually comes from my peers rather than my parents. It was my schooling experiences that really formed most of it, not so much them. Uh, but they had a role to play in my dishonesty strategy. You know, I found that it worked on my parents, so then I used it on others, it worked on teachers, it worked on my peers, it worked on strange policemen that came up and talked to me. Like, I could just lie and lie and lie, and I was good at lying. But everybody believed me. You know, I, was, I, I can't remember ever being called out. Really, I was so convincing. Because I knew how to mix the truth with the lie, and I was just very manipulative from an early age. The thing about nice guys is we spend so much time observing other people that we get pretty good at guessing what they're thinking and feeling and pretty good at guessing what will work and how to say something that will be convincing. And uh, unfortunately, I had that gift, which was not something to brag about because it just turned me into kind of a manipulative, just a fake, really. Moving on to my teen years, a few key experiences. One is I found... Music. My band, heavy metal especially, well, I grew into it more and more. I found this one place where I could get my emotions out and still be validated. You know, I could perform on stage and I could rock my head and scream my heart out. I was a singer back then. Um, play like music that reflected how I felt on the inside. I was full of resentment and hate and confusion as a teen. I'm sure most of them are. Um... And this was the only way I could show that I felt that way without getting mocked, uh, bullied, or without worrying I was going to cry. So metal really saved me. Like A lot of people think of metal kids, these goths, you know, with chains and black hair and stuff, and think of them as these miserable people. But especially in teen years, they're actually some of the most emotionally healthy, ironically, because they're, they're trying to express it. They're showing it. That blackness that they wear is, is how they feel on the inside. The thing is, all teens feel that blackness. But at least the fucking metal kids are showing it. The metal kids are okay to reveal that they're upset. And as I've found it, you know, the, all the metal people I've stayed in touch with over the years, the adults anyway, far more honest and really ironically emotionally stable, with exceptions, with massive exceptions, but then, you know, sort of the average polo shirt wearing nine to five listens to Katy Perry, dude, you know, um, because they're used to just speaking their mind and being a bit rebellious and not giving a fuck what others think and so on. And that's allowed them to develop a kind of honesty. I'm not saying they're a perfect group of people by any means. There's certainly, you know, huge conspiracy theories and shit going on in that sector, but uh, if you want honesty, you're more likely to get it from someone covered in tattoos and earrings than from anyone else, in my experience. Anyway, so I found the band, and this is also, you know, my time in high school was also where I really developed my funniness, you know. I found that I had a dry, quick sense of humor, um, that I could exaggerate what other people were saying to make it funnier. Um... And I just sort of stumbled on these like principles of comedy where I could pretty much always get a laugh from pretty much anyone. Once I got to know them a little bit, I could find out what pushed their buttons and so on. 
and also what was just generally funny. And so that became my primary weapon of choice. You know, my if you were to just drop in on me in any social interaction, nine times out of ten, I would have been funny. Like I was trying to be funny all the time. And part of it was healthy, like trying to cope with the hor horrendous life there. Uh, is the middle class nice guy you know me and my friends we use humor a lot we like watching funny programs we weren't serious about anything we rebelled and mocked anybody being serious um and it, it was fun and it was genuinely fun you know i had a couple of friends in high school this is not the uh common experience for nice guys but i had a couple of real friends in high school uh, both girls and guys that I could be fully myself with and just reveal it all. Like they knew about what I wasn't showing everyone else and so on. And we, we joked around a lot. We just took the piss and had laughs a lot because it was the only way to cope with the struggle we're having psychologically. So being funny became something that I carried through uh, for most of the rest of my life as a defense mechanism against intimacy. Uh, you know, to keep people liking me, but not letting them get too close, you know. I don't want to get people attached because I lose people all the time. But I also don't want to be the kid crying alone. So I found the strategy, be funny and you'll be surrounded by people who like you all the time without actually having to worry if one of them leaves. You know, another key incident for me in high school was we used to all hang out at lunchtime, chat, shoot the shit. And I'd, nowadays I'd call it gossip. We used to talk about people behind their backs. So if one of the crew was away for some reason, we'd just rip the piss out of that person behind their back. It was like a pattern. I now look back and realize it's really bitchy and insecure and you know very lacking in integrity, but we're teenage boys. What do you expect, right? It never occurred to me that it might be my turn one day. You know, I thought I was on the in group of the group. You know, I thought I was on the inner circle who didn't get touched. Even though it occurred to me that I've never seen someone go untouched, like anybody's away, they get the piss taken out of them, and it was really harsh, wounding stuff. You wouldn't want to hear it. Well, there's this one guy, I won't go into detail, but he seemed to enjoy my suffering while pretending to be my friend. I would say nowadays that he had some sort of personality disorder, but he posed as one of my closest friends, and yet he'd always like leak information from other people that would hurt my feelings. He probably had like a borderline personality or something. Anyway, so one day I was away for whatever reason. I came back and he said, oh, you know, they were talking about you today. And he told me what they were saying. And it was weird stuff. I, I Like if I had to guess, what, what shit would people talk behind my back? I wouldn't have guessed this in a million years. Like they were making fun of the fact that I lived on a farm. That would have never occurred to me. You know, saying that I fuck cows and all sorts of stuff. It's pretty funny stuff, actually. But the shock, the like bullet to the chest that I felt when I realized, fuck, I'm not immune to this. Like, they don't love me enough to not do this to me, right? I'm not in the inner circle. It's an illusion. I'm not really in at all. Like, the stuff that I was saying was brutal. It, it was a joke for them, but there was a reason they weren't saying it to my face. They knew it would hurt my feelings deeply if they said it to my face. It was beyond banter. It was personal attacks, wounds. This just further enabled my avoidant attachment problem where I just went, okay, I don't even have real friends. Nobody. You know, there were people in that circle who I considered to be my best friends at the time. And nobody stepped up for me. Nobody, like, at least walked away from the conversation and didn't join in. They all jumped in. Now, a lot of it, you know, it was only hurtful because I was sensitive. It was, you know, stuff that maybe could have just been banter if I'd been there face to face. The fact that they waited until I was away to do it, that was a clear message there about how they felt about the information, what they thought I'd feel about it. And of course, girls became a big deal in high school for me. And there were a lot of key experiences that rocked my world there, but I'll share a couple with you. One was a friend of mine lived across the road. He was a good friend, a year younger, and he was everything I wasn't when it came to girls. Now, I don't mean he was more handsome than me or anything like that, but he just had this natural ability that was absolutely mind-blowing to me. I understand it now, but back then it was like magic, where girls just fell into his lap. Like, he got the treatment from girls that hot girls get from guys. It was ridiculous. They would chase. They would compete for him. You know, he had girls like two years above him having sex with him. 
you know, which is unheard of in high school to like go down the levels like that. And I, I remember there was a party where there was a queue of girls patiently waiting to get with them, you know, taking turns at hooking up with them. It was insanity. And I, and me being basically his best mate, uh, was just, it was like tall and skinny with short and fat. Like I was so different to him. At the same party, I'd be the one just like organizing the line for him. No girls interested in me, you know. There's a time where like sex was becoming a big deal. We're all lying about who's getting in, who's not, and all that. And this guy just lived in this different realm where girls just loved him. And it was, it didn't make any sense to me because he didn't behave in a way that I thought girls would like. You know, he's always taking the piss out of them. He, you know, he was always uh, kind of doing whatever he felt like doing, saying offensive things. He didn't give a shit. And I, to me, <laughs> this is how naive I was, of course. I'm like, at the time, I'm like, how does that work? How does, why would a girl like that? Instead of going like, um, maybe just look at the results and realize that is what girls like, you idiot, you know? Um, and, and this guy, I used to just watch him all the time, just jaw on the floor, wishing I had what he had. And just how, how painfully obvious it was that I was the opposite. You know, like how awkward it would be for me to go on my one date per year. You know, and, and how painful it was to like try and find a girl that would like me. And how the only girls who liked me were these crazy ass, like wouldn't want to go near them girls. And all the other people were having girlfriends and having experiences. And I was just like left behind, just like feeling like I was had some sort of like arrested development. Like I just couldn't figure out what everyone else was figuring out. So he always stood out to me, and the reason, one of the reasons he was so significant, because he planted a seed about, you know, what women actually respond to, and it wouldn't be another decade before that seed grew into anything for me, till it was sort of validated and confirmed, or more, more so because it was explained to me what I was seeing finally. But, you know, becoming him became like my goal. Uh, it just took me many years to kind of achieve that goal if there was such a thing as that. Now, another key moment was I had my first sort of girlfriend in high school. And she was not interested in being sexual at all. Like I had to beg after three weeks to get a very chaste kiss on the lips. Which, you know, at the time in my circle of friends was a big deal. Like how much are you getting, you know, and, and we always used to talk about the specifics. And if you weren't getting much, you got mocked and so on. And I remember this is the first and only time I ever cheated on a girl. I was at a party and this really unattractive girl was clearly interested in me. And I just grabbed her and kissed her as a kind of, I don't know, form of revenge on the girl who wouldn't be sexual with me or whatever. Now, this was a significant experience for a number of reasons. One is now looking back on it with the wisdom I have now, I know that I wanted to get caught. I know that I wanted her to find out that I did that because it would end the relationship without me having to end it, which is a classic pattern for nice guys. The avoidant attachments, we try to get ourselves fired, so to speak, rather than quitting. And that's exactly what happened. The friend I mentioned earlier who like secretly hurt me by, while pretending to be my friend, he told on me. He knocked. And so I must have subconsciously known that doing it in front of him was exactly the right move to get rid of her. She was so much more devastated than I could have possibly predicted. It wrecked her. You know, I, I remember the phone call. I remember where I was standing at my house during the phone call because of how emotional it was. And I, I just didn't realize she liked me that much and that I'd really broken her heart. I, I actually figured that I was trying to reject her before she rejected me because I took the non-sexuality on her part as kind of sign of disinterest. And I didn't realize, no, it wasn't the case at all. She was just nervous and... Actually, I wasn't leading. Anyway, she later basically became a slut. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean she used to use fucking dudes to feel better about herself and was known for that. And she then became like the classic pregnant teen and single mom, and she had that whole life. I saw her many years later and actually apologized to her Um you know, when we were adults, and she made it very clear that I was a significant factor in the way she chose to become. Now, I'm not saying I'm really to blame, but, you know, she was innocent, and I broke that, and she maybe would have had a much better life had I not done that. Actually, she definitely would have had a much better life if I had not done that. And the amount of damage I did was so contrary to my nature. Like, underneath most nice guys is a genuine nice person. 
and just the the thing that I did that much damage when actually I was trying to get myself out of it um, is the reason I've never cheated since and never will. Like I can't I can't do that to another person. For me, it felt like murder. I just I could never do that again. So eventually, late in high school, a girl does like me. It takes me about eight months to do anything about it. She was patient and she initiated. And I have my first relationship. I lose my virginity. I have a long-term relationship for the first time. And that's when the nice guy emerged. I didn't know how much of a nice guy I was until I was put into a relationship situation, which was my high-stakes environment. I've got a girl that likes me and I want to keep her without it getting so intimate that I get my feelings hurt. What a difficult game to play. And so I did everything I could to keep her happy every second of the day. Difficult to do with any woman, uh, but especially difficult with a precocious teen girl. Okay, this is a girl who, you know, she wasn't uh, superficial or, or particularly crazy or anything, but she was certainly, she felt her emotions deeply and she had a huge range. And, you know, she's a teen with teen girl friends, you know, and they're always bitching about each other and giving each other shit and making each other cry and all that. So it was very difficult work for me to keep her happy and consistent all the time. I, you know, had to learn very quickly how to be like sexually pleasing for my first sexual relationship and so on and so forth. And for two and a half years, every ounce of my energy went into making her happy. Then, of course, as we got into, you know, two and a half years, took us out of high school. I'm at uni now, getting close to it. And then out of nowhere, she just broke up with me. Now, I say out of nowhere because that's what it looked like from my perspective. Like Everything's going smooth sailing, and suddenly for a couple of weeks she's distant. She's got this new group of friends from a new job. I don't really know what's going on. It's weird. The way she's not getting back to me like she usually does, and so on and so forth. It's been a while since we had sex. What's going on? And one day she shows up like, we need to talk. And I'm just like, oh, fuck. I'm dumped. I'm dumped after like two and a half years. Holy fuck. What I now realize is that being a nice guy is absolutely boring as fuck to be with and you don't get an emotional range you can't respect the guy it's predictable it's unexciting and even if predictability and unexciting was a strength the fact that it's just forced and fake and there's no real emotions going on no woman's so stupid that she can't eventually figure out that this ain't right and something deep in her just goes, get away from this dude, you know, which is what happened. She just left. She found someone who was more real, perhaps. She may have cheated on me. I'm not sure. That was never confirmed. But once again, I'm abandoned. It seemed to be for no reason. It seemed to be out of my control. And so if my avoidant attachment wasn't already fully flared, now it comes to be my persona. Like, I'm never letting someone hurt me like that again. You know, I like let my guard down. She got in. I loved her. And then she crushed me out of nowhere. And I just came to see the world in this bitter way that I see now in, like, the red pill communities and stuff. These guys have just got a shocking hit like this, or more than one. And their reaction was to view the world as unfair and view themselves as victims. And I went there. And this is also around the time that I went to university and had another shock, which is I have no fucking idea how to socialize and make new friends. I didn't realize until much later that the uni crowd is not my type of people. But I desperately was trying to ingratiate myself with them, trying to get in with the crew. But partly it was a logistical thing. I had Because I was so interested in psychology, I sort of cobbled together this super degree of psychology. And I didn't have all the classes the same, like most people did, who were doing the same stream of shit. So I wasn't seeing people as often. I wasn't quite able to form the clicks with them like they did. And then I wasn't getting invited to parties and I live far away and all this stuff. And once again, I'm like, holy shit, I don't really have any friends. And first time something started that would continue long into my 20s is I'd get anxious before the weekend. You know, is anyone going to text me? Is anyone going to let me know what they're up to? Are they going to text me back? Do I really have friends at all? Am I going to be like sitting at home with my parents this weekend? God forbid. Uni, the breakup at the same time, that was the start of my four-year drought of no sex, despite my best efforts. It was the start of a growing awareness that I don't actually have many real friendships, that the crew I hang out with, the group, they don't seem to miss me when I'm gone. They don't seem to give a fuck about me. 
They forget to invite me to stuff. They weren't callous, mean people. They weren't bad people. I just wasn't important to them. They just didn't feel deeply connected to me. I was just entertainment, and I had created that. I was the one that uh, engineered that situation. My avoidant intimacy was starting to have its downsides. Like many childhood strategies, especially nice guy syndrome, it's in adulthood where it starts to backfire. And I was starting to experience that backfire now, you know, struggling to make friends at university, struggling to have a connection with my real friends, feeling very alone, not knowing what to do with women, not getting anywhere with women because partly I had an issue with erectile dysfunction that I was aware of that when I was with a new girl, I couldn't really get it up because I was too nervous. And so I'd start to unconsciously self-sabotage myself with women. So consciously it felt like I was trying really hard with girls all the time, every weekend, dancing near them at the nightclub or trying to make them laugh in my friend circle and desperately hoping something would happen. I had friend zone after friend zone, these girls that like I'd spend four nights a week hanging out with them at their house and just end up becoming like their gay friend, you know. It must have been at least half a dozen girls that I did this with for six to eight months at a time. Brutal. God, it's so painful to think back. Just desperately trying to get laid and not really superficially like, oh, I just want to get my dick wet, but just for validation. I just wanted someone to like me. And the only only validation I trusted, because people had abandoned me so often, was sex. That was the only thing that I could trust, like a girl really does actually like me. If she just said, I like you, we're great friends, you know, kissed me, anything, I'd be like, nah, that could be fake. Not until she opens her legs can I be sure that I'm a good person. You know, that's that's where my self-esteem was at. I'm not alone in that. So when you've also got erectile dysfunction, which prevents you ever claiming that prize, well, it's a kind of hell, isn't it? And uh, so I lived in hell for my early 20s. The only moments of happiness I had were being alone, like reading books and stuff like that. Um, the rare times that I went on like international trips, when I went to America the first time, which I'll talk about. And uh, drugs. Drugs and alcohol. Uh, getting high and drunk was about my only time that I'd experience real pleasure. The rest of the time I was basically just anxious or miserable. And it really came home, you know, one year. My friends used to always go away together in group for New Year's Eve, you know, a week or two somewhere, camping usually. And it was something you had to organize very early in the year because all the best spots get booked out. And uh, one year they just didn't remember to include me in the plans. And so I came like, oh, I was about halfway through the year. I'm like, oh, it's getting on a bit. Somebody should be organizing something. And I was never the organizer person, which of course I have to take ownership for. But, uh, you know, the ones who usually were the organizers hadn't been in touch. So I reached out to them, like, who's organizing shit this year? And they say, oh, it's blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, blah, blah, blah. So what's the plan? He's like, oh, yeah, we, we're, we're booked out, man. It's already sorted. Did you want to come? You know, it's like that kind of thing. What do you mean do I want to come? Fucking hang out with you guys every weekend? What the fuck else am I going to do, you know? And, oh, sorry, mate, campsite's booked out now. There's no room for you. There was also a little bit of pushback, like maybe somebody could have squeezed me into a tent or let me sleep in the back of their car, which is what they did for their preferred people, you know. If I'd been one of the inner crew, they would have like moved mountains to get them there, but they're just like, sorry, mate, it's all booked. Yeah, no room. Sorry. Like I was some interloper, inter like trying to get in on the, something that I wasn't really welcome to, which may have actually been the case. And so, you know, for the first time, I realized that's a real, real accurate measure of where I stand, you know, especially because like in the same year, I'd see them wrangle somebody else in who forgot and didn't care, but somebody they loved, you know, they would get that person, they'd make that happen. He could sleep on the floor at least. But for me, it's like, no, nah, no, nah, sorry, there's only a double bed left and we need that for our coats, you know, so sorry. So that was a big wake up call where I realized I don't have any friends, really. I mean, I do have a couple. I don't want to dismiss those. I'm still friends with them to this day. But uh, my big crew, crew, like a dozen more people, actually I had various groups that I'd be sort of connected to, I realized that I'm nothing to them. They don't care if I live or die, really. I mean, they'd be sad if I die, but not for very long. It also, uh, when I went to USA for the first time, I went for almost six months, I think, overall. And I came back and nobody had missed me. That was another big warning sign, you know. Nobody was emailing me or hitting me up on social media, see how it was going or anything. 
uh, except for the few that I really was close with. But the USA trip itself was another eye-opener and uh, another one that sort of formed me. I don't know why. It was partly who I was with. Uh, I went with the few people in New Zealand that I was actually connected to in a real way, a couple of guys. Um, but I was in this new country, and I was in this uh, progressive environment. You know, I went to one of the rich kid camps where you're allowed to be whatever the fuck you want. You know, they had a magic section, they had a circus section with a trapeze and all. They had a Dungeons and Dragons room. They had fucking um, climbing. They had uh, water skiing. Every type of person on the fucking planet was there. Tennis. I'd been lucky enough to get into one of the rich kid camps as a camp counselor for an exchange program thing that they do. And uh, I realized, fuck, I can be anything I want here. I can be a rock star. I can be a fucking nerd. And there's a group, and I'm welcomed by everybody. Everybody welcomed everyone. There was, like, little to no bullying. And I saw basketball kids hanging out with Dungeons & Dragons kids. No problem at all. I'd never seen that before in my life where I could be anything. And an instinct kicked in where I was like, well, go on then. Do, just be you kind of thing. Now, I don't know how authentic I'd rate it now, looking back, but as a first go, I don't know, I dressed differently. I just said how I feel told people I liked them. I was still pretty avoidant and pretty sort of, uh, you know, hiding behind humor and stuff, but nowhere near as much as New Zealand. I was included a lot more. You know, people were inviting me to stuff instead of, like, leaving me behind. had a couple of really close friends there. had, a, like, a girlfriend for the first time in forever, though I still didn't consummate that because of my problems. But, you know, I was really, um, I got to saw what being myself might look like. I got a taste. I was actually uh, depressed about the idea of going back home and knowing I'd, I'd have to like revert back to the people pleaser because for the first time in forever, I was being welcomed as whatever I wanted to be and I could speak my mind more honestly and so on. That's probably 10% of the honesty I currently live by, but back then it was a big deal. It was also around that time there was a girl I had a crush on since high school and she emailed me while I was in America Long story short, saying I had missed an opportunity with her because I'd gone to America. We had actually had a little date right before I left, I think, and then, you know, by the time I got back, she was engaged to somebody. Uh, so that was, you know, pretty small window of opportunity. But that was a sig significant event for me as well because she liked me, and this dawning realization, maybe girls do like me. You know, the reason that stands out is because that email was – Maybe the first time in fucking forever that a girl I liked had shown that she liked me back. And liked me back like romantically, not just as a friend. Prior to that, I'd only ever sort of hung out or hooked up with girls uh, who liked me, but I didn't really like them, you know. And so when I realized, man, like a high-quality girl by my standards likes me, it was just, again, it was like a seed planted. Like maybe I'm not as fucking much of a loser as I thought. Maybe it's, there's some other reason why I'm not doing so well with girls. Maybe there are girls who do like me and I'm, I'm just not being able to make that connection somehow. Now before we get into the pickup artist period of my life, there was one thing that happened. I was in town one night and uh, there's two dudes having a fight. It was kind of like three dudes but primarily two and it was very much uh, an uneven battle. So one dude was basically whooping the ass of the other dude. And I didn't know the, the backstory. I just sort of turned the corner and this fight was happening. But all I could sense was, like, no matter what the little dude has done, fight's over. Like, <laughs> he's done. You won. Like, enough. And I actually got in between them. Here I am thinking I'm afraid of confrontation. I'm afraid of violence. I'm afraid of, you know, being hurt and so on and so forth. And here I am, without thinking, I was getting between two brawling ass dudes i think i actually took a bit of a punch myself or i i know i had some sort of injury from like just being in the way but i separated them i got home that night which i i didn't realize when i got home looked in the mirror and i had the you know the loser dude's blood from like chin to waist all over my shirt i was just covered in blood it looked like fucking dexter you know and i just remember looking at that blood going how was it i'm brave enough to get into that situation, but such a pussy. And just, again, it was just this thing like this prodding from the darkness of my subconscious 
just like when you know I missed the opportunity with the girl and uh, I was myself a bit an American I just saw these like things that I'm like capable of that didn't make sense to who I thought I was like I'm stronger than I think I am like uh, I'm more lovable than I think I am I guess just got this prodding all of this would come to fruition later but I got these prods throughout my life of like come on bro look what you what you can do look who you could be and then it would just like disappear back into the blackness and I'd go back to people pleasing thinking that was the best I could offer like me by myself isn't good enough so I got to put on a show so every now and then I'd see these moments of like glory nobility or great results that I just didn't didn't line up with who I was it wasn't possible for me to be that person and get that result that kind of thing and one day I'm on the internet this is my space days old school searching around I don't know exactly what I'm searching for maybe how to get a date or something I'm just at this point you know the drought's been going for a long time I just even when a girl likes me I don't know what to do about it fucking desperate I'm dying here everybody but me is having success with women and I stumble across what looks like a kind of online argument of some kind a forum and in this forum guys are talking about women but in a way I'd never seen before in my life they're talking about it like a computer algorithm now to this day I don't remember who I was looking at but probably one of the, some of the old school masters of the pickup artist movement before it was famous before anybody knew what the fuck it was I stumbled onto it briefly for a short time and I just remember being shook by what I was reading All these guys were talking about a systematic way to make a girl like you and if what they were saying was to be believed it worked now, I did nothing about it at the time it was it was like seeing the plans for a nuclear bomb and just going, oh, fuck, I don't want to make that, it's too dangerous. And and just, but I, I knew what I was seeing was something that was like hidden from society and important to me and, you know, maybe I just wasn't desperate enough. But it stuck in my memory long enough that years later when I'm working for a book place, I was selling books for some fucking reason, I see this book called The Game. And it looked like a Bible and I was like, that's why I picked it up. I'm like, what is this? And it said something about like how to get women. And something inside me stirred like, oh, is this like that shit? Like that thing I read on the internet that time, that weird thing. I flick through the book, I'm like, it is. Somebody's turned it into a book. Now this stage, I'm ready. I've had enough. Four years. No girls even seeming to like me. Desperately alone. Thinking I'm never going to have a girlfriend again in my life. Everybody teasing me about it. And this book looks like the fucking Bible. Yeah, I'm going to give it a read. In fact, I shoplifted it. Well, I stole it from my workplace. I just acted like I was taking it to sell it somewhere and just kept it. I read it, I must have read it cover to cover in a single night. And I read it many, many more times. Bookmarking pages, highlighting passages. It really became my Bible. And like it had the gold trim around the edge of the pages and then like a black leather case with... You know, that built-in bookmark thing made out of ribbon. You know, and, and as I read it, not only did I relate to the author so strongly, just this hope, you know, bloomed like, there's a way out. This is what no guy has had, who's been good with girls has ever been able to explain to me. Whenever I've asked, he hasn't been able to give me advice that I could actually follow. He hasn't been able to break it down to steps that allow for my lack of courage or anything. And here's a book that does exactly that to the fucking letter. No stone unturned. The fact that the book ends in disaster for the people doing it, I just pff, dismiss that. I'm like, yeah, but they got laid. Who cares? Right. The idea that this is actually a dark path to walk that just ends in misery and ruin and like nobody actually gets anything out of it in the long run. Ah, didn't give a fuck. That doesn't, a guy who hasn't had sex in four years but knows what sex like, yeah, he doesn't care about that. No, I certainly didn't. Again, this is where my courage both sort of went for me and against me. I went out all by myself, no support, no awareness of anybody else doing this stuff. In Auckland, New Zealand, where I think I was one of the few, maybe, for all I know, I was the pioneer in Auckland, the first to do pickup stuff on his own. Um, you know, later on I became aware of other dudes doing it, but it does seem that I was like one of the first. I mean, I took this book when it first was published. You know, it wasn't even known when I stole it. Anyway, I started going clubs, 
and started for the first time in my life initiating conversations with strangers. Uh, now, it was very fake what I was doing. It was contrived. I was practicing lines that I'd read in books and later on on internet forums. I was, I literally had like a piece of paper in my pocket with a to-do list, like a, a checklist of stages I needed to go through in a conversation and good bits to use in each stage of the conversation. And my goal for that night, maybe it's maintaining eye contact, maybe it's touching, maybe it's trying this new sort of routine. It was very scripted and manipulative, but it fucking worked. By saying, when I say it worked, I don't mean it got me healthy relationships with great people, because it certainly did not do that. When I say it worked, what I mean is, for the first time in my life, I was able to talk to girls and get a positive response that wasn't friend zoning. Right? I had girls laughing with me, flirting with me. Eventually, after many months of practicing, I would have girls offering their phone number and then slowly but surely sure enough i broke the dry spell it was actually with a girl i went to high school with but i basically used the stuff i'd been learning on her and she went from high school buddy to fuck buddy which i'm sure was to her disappointment because i was terrible in bed after so long out of the game but <laughs> this thing had like broken the drought the drought that had plagued my mind every day of my life for four fucking years multiple times per day coming up as something that bothered me it was finally over you know I, I I had a phone full of phone numbers you know I had girls text me three four times a day you know it, it was just I'd never seen anything like this before in my life I never had this much love from women in my life before now, I didn't realize of course I could have had that all along had I just been real and authentic with girls but I didn't have that comparison I had a life of being alone and unloved by girls as comparison and this was like finding heaven on earth. It was one of the happiest periods of my life to date. One of the most exciting and optimistic periods where I was like, fuck, I have a future with women. I know what I'm doing now, you know, and it just got more and more. But then it started to kind of skew off in a direction where the more successful I became, the less satisfying it became. So at some point I was now, you know, I'd have sex regularly. Uh, there'd be times where I'd be sort of seeing more than one girl at a time call it kind of uh, discreet open relationships like they didn't know they were in open relationships there were girls using me for sex to get back at their boyfriends stuff like this was happening which to me you know written on paper in my 20s it would look like the lifestyle of my dreams but there was something coming up one is that a girl never stayed with me for very long like once I ran out of material uh, it's like it got old for her. So she, I'd, I'd blow her away. I'd make all her friends, you know, jealous. I'd piss off all the guys who were trying to get with her by just scooping her up in one go. Then three weeks later, she'd lose interest and move on. Another thing that was happening is I started to feel really uncomfortable about sleeping with girls after kind of seducing them. Like, do they even know who they're really sleeping with? Is this the same as fraud? It started to feel a bit rapey frankly and uh, it also I realized it wasn't really validating because the guy they liked was the guy I constructed based on material that I learned from other dudes that was primarily about getting with girls and the real me was still alone none of these girls were staying with the real me in fact once they were with me long enough that I couldn't keep up the act much longer they lost interest which told me the real me was still unloved you know, and so it was starting to get just unsatisfying. And I kept, so like most people, when it's unsatisfying, I just do more of it. Try to change it up, try different styles. At this time, the whole game thing was this huge industry. I'd actually paid to go on like a boot camp and when I went to Sydney and did stuff under an instructor's eye, like in real life, which, you know, by then I, I was actually doing really well with it, so to speak. Um... And there's all these different styles, and one style that was coming out was a kind of one that they call direct, which is like you go up to a girl in the middle of the day, right there on the street, and you say, I think you're gorgeous, I wanted to meet you, you know. And that appealed to me because at the time, not only did it do the one thing that none of the other styles were doing, which is it just you came outright with your attraction, you didn't hide it and make them earn it, you just said, I like you straight away. And it, it had that kind of honesty appeal to it where I'm like, 
I can say that straight up, then I've got nothing else to hide. And it didn't so much have scripted routines and such. It was more like, hey, just talk about yourself or you know, ask about her. But it was kind of like you put you into it. At least that's how I interpreted it. Which led to one of my biggest moments in my life. After three months of trying and failing to muster up the courage to do this, I finally went to a shopping mall, went up to a girl and said, I think you're gorgeous. And she smiled. And that smile was one of the biggest game changers of my entire life. That smile said, you being you and saying what you really think is something I like. And I, I don't know if I'd ever really heard that before. Well, you know, seen evidence of that. Girl out of nowhere just liking me for me saying what I think and how I feel about her and nothing else. I wasn't like putting on a show or anything. I guess a show of bravery, perhaps, but that that first so-called direct approach was my first step actually away from the pickup artist thing. Because as I did it more and more, I started to realize like this only really works if I'm being real with them. If you just go up to any girl and say, I think you're gorgeous, even though that's not what you really think of her, you don't actually get that great smile and reaction. It has to be the spontaneous, like, holy fuck, you know, you she has to feel that you are actually feeling it. As I realize that, I'm like, I can't script this anymore. I just have to go up to people, look at them, and then say whatever's on my mind. And I start doing it with anybody. I do it with a girl who's walking with her parents, you know, elderly parents, not like a child. Come on. Or a girl who's with her boyfriend, or just a group of dudes. And I realize this isn't just romantic. I can do this anywhere, anytime. As I did that more and more, the goal shifted from getting the girl and getting laid and all those things, which I now found relatively straightforward uh to impressing myself you know what's the more most dangerous situation i can do this like what's the boldest thing i can say and can i teach someone else and show them how it's done and so on and that's where i started shifting more and more to focus on courage and honesty and eventually just to focus on honesty eventually I realized hey, I don't need to worry about trying to get laid or get a girlfriend or anything because honesty will take care of that for me and it will only allow the best girls through and this eventually over months of practice I weaned myself off the strategy of pickup artistry and got to just honesty I got to radical honesty where I would happily say something that would make people reject me and make them think less of me or hurt my reputation I just didn't give a shit. I just so impressed that I said it. I don't care if it gets a bad reaction, you know. I got to the point where I'm confronting people where, you know, one of the stories I told before where I confronted all my workmates about gossiping. It just made them hate me, but I didn't care and so on. And that's when I really, I guess, I picked up this kind of religion of honesty, as I call it. I decided that I'm going to go all in on honesty. I don't care if it means I sleep by myself tonight. Honesty is all that matters. It's the only thing I've ever thoroughly enjoyed. And the only time I get validation, it's healthy validation. It's the kind of thing that means they like me for who I really am. And I came to realize that that's the ultimate form of social connection is where you've shown someone everything about you, it's who you really are, and they're like, yeah, that's, that's what I like. And I came to realize I don't want everyone to like me. I just want that. Just a few people who feel like that, that's good enough for me. Eventually, that would also lead to me going, I don't even need anyone else to feel that way about me. I need to feel that way. That's it. Though it is very nice when other people do. And as a married man, I guess I got into it. The last few experiences would be related to my Department of Corrections uh, working experience and my coaching, but I won't go too far into that. Because by this stage, you know, I'd really worked through most of my nice guy stuff. But in corrections was the final frontier for confrontations. I had the biggest, scariest guys ever confronting me on a daily basis. And it was just trial by fire. So I went in there as a meek little lamb, you know, being intimidated and manipulated by these dudes. And a few years later, I was telling them, you know, how to step right. And not just that, but leadership. I learned I became a manager and a coach within that role. I learned how to lead others, how to get the best out of people without manipulating them how to bring out their best that was already in there, uh, which eventually led to coaching. And every single coaching session I have is an education in psychology, teaches me more about myself, makes me have realizations about myself, 
it all just adds to it. But I don't want to go too much longer because that isn't what really counts towards a nice guy recovery as much as the other stuff I've talked about today. Actually, I can see in my notes I left out a lot of things, but you know, you don't want to be sitting here for five hours. So that's some of the key experiences that formed me and then destroyed me and then reformed me. And I wouldn't change a single thing. I've done some horrible things. I've had some shitty experiences. Uh, I've been in a lot of pain psychologically and emotionally. But every single bit of it was a step on the staircase. You know, like I couldn't change any, if I changed any of those things that ever happened, no matter how awful they were, uh, I'd be less now. So they have to stay. And I can't change them anyway, so that helps. Thank you for listening. I'm flattered if you got this far and give a shit about my life that much. Hope there was something in there for you, at least if nothing else, something to relate to. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments, unless they're negative, in which case I'll ignore you. And uh, I'll see you guys next time. Oh, yes, of course, if you want any help, get in touch, dan at brojo.org. I'm available for coaching, as always. See you guys next time. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity.